You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the first time in 16 years, the two candidates for president met in a televised debate. And then something happened that nobody could have anticipated. The two candidates had traded barbs back and forth, speaking on a variety of topics in the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. There was only eight minutes left. President Ford had spoken, and now Governor Jimmy Carter of Georgia was answering a question and said, In our government in recent years is a breakdown in the trust among our people. With that, shh, then aloud, it was a breakdown, all right, a technical malfunction that prevented the TV audience from hearing the candidates. In the theater, the sound was okay, but the TV networks couldn't get the audio. Governor Cardo had to be informed that he should stop talking. The theater audience didn't know why. David Brinkley came on TV. The pool operators in Philadelphia have lost the audio. Then he added, It is not a conspiracy against Governor Carter or President Ford, and they will fix it as soon as possible. More shh and more as they tried to attempt to get the audio back on. We hope to have it back any minute. We don't know what's happened to it. And then, for 27 minutes, the two potential leaders of the free world sat there in silence. Neither campaign, neither candidate had prepared for such an eventuality. Indeed, there was such intense prep, particularly on President Ford's part, for this event that no one wanted to make a false move to get every advantage from the visual image of themselves to the voters while the camera was hot. They had prepared intensely. Well, the camera was still hot. From what they knew, they were being filmed on TV. You might think they'd relax a little bit, but they didn't. They stayed frozen in their stances at the podium. David Brinkley again. I think that they have stopped talking because they have been told the sound is lost. Whatever happened has stopped momentarily. I wish I could tell you more about it. The Carter campaign used the 27 minutes eventually to get maximum advantage. Jody Powell, press secretary for Carter, used it as a chance to spin reporters. And Rosalind Carter, the governor's wife, said, If we would do anything about it, we would have kept going because Jimmy was doing so good. They interviewed Ford's press secretary, too, who informed the network that, although their man read the United States of America, when it came to the Walnut Street Theater, all he could do was await to hear what the debate moderators said. David Brinkley now came on. It is now 11.15 p.m. The League of Women Voters has canceled the debate. The debate is over. But then even he didn't know. He talked to a voice in his ear that you could barely hear on air. Am I right? The debate is over? It's over. We plan to come on with our post-debate coverage as planned at 11.30. But even that really was unknown as technicians ran around the theater with wires They went to correspondence with giant earphones and old thin silver mics interviewing various debate goers, which they had planned to do after the debate. A shot of the two candidates still stoic at their podiums. 
Carter, occasionally scribbling something on his notepad, doing his best John Kennedy, and then back with Brinkley. I keep telling you what I don't know, which is a great deal. And then, even surprising the network anchor, the sound comes back in the Walnut Theater. The debate was continued, and the head moderator said that he very much regretted the sound and thanked the candidates for their patience. And since it occurred during Governor Carter's response, he could conclude the answer to the question. And then, Governor Carter did just that. He finished his sentence as if the 27 minutes had not happened. There has been too much government secrecy and not enough respect for the personal privacy of American citizens. It was so Carter, in a way. He made no reference at all to the sound being out for all that time, just went on and finished his question. You know, Clinton or Reagan would have made a joke right there. He had a lot of time to think about it. Both Ford and Carter then went into their closing statements, and the strange debate was over. Well, despite the spin of the Carter team in 1976, that flub in Walnut Street might have been the best thing, a good distraction, because otherwise the story would have been all about how well President Ford did. Indeed, there was lots of talk about it as it was. From the moment of the first debate, it was clear the president was doing himself a world of good. When he emerged on the stage, he surprised his opponent by wearing a vest, which made him look like a stronger leader. They had negotiated the size of the podiums to balance Carter's height against Ford. They had negotiated away the seal of the president on Ford's podium, but they couldn't tell the president what to wear. James Gannon, one of the panelists from the Wall Street Journal at the debate, said that the former U-Mish linebacker, Gerald Ford, was such an imposing presence versus Jimmy Carter that Ford looked like he could pick up the podium and throw it at me. Ford won the debate. We did not Carter out by any means, and the sound thing made it a little weird. And in future debates in 76, he would make a gaffe that many attribute to him losing the 1976 campaign. His vice presidential candidate, Dole, would have a bad debate against Mondale in a third meeting, featuring Carter in a much more conservative gray suit and fat red tie. That was considered a draw. Maybe a slight Ford win. So in such a close race, it's difficult to tell, but many point to the debates as being decisive in that election, both in getting the race close to a tie and with Ford's gaffe leading to his downfall. How much do these presidential TV debates that we watch now as part of every campaign matter? There's a lot of criticism of them, and yet they remain a sacred part of the election. It would be so hard for either the Republican or the Democrats to refuse to debate now. I couldn't even imagine it. Many attribute the first presidential television debates to being the factor that sunk Vice President Richard Nixon in his first run for president in 1960 against John F. Kennedy. Nixon himself didn't think so. Years later, he said, those who claim the great debates were the turning point in the debate overstate the point. It's at best guesswork and oversimplification. That's what Nixon, one of the victims of debates, so we think, said. 1960 featured four debates, which has never happened again. We've had one debate in at least one election, two debates in a couple, and now three debates has become the modern norm. For Nixon, he figured that foreign affairs was his strong suit. He wanted a larger audience for the debate. He said he thought the first debate would be the most watched, but it had never been done before. So he yielded to the determination of his advisors that more people would watch the final debate. Nixon's instinct, as it turned out, was right. 20 million fewer watched the second, third, and fourth debates than watched the first debate in 1960, when it was a novelty. 
and Kennedy had done a little bit better in that first debate. Well, sometimes history beats up politics, and sometimes it's just left their lion on the table. It would appear already before Election Day that President Obama's debate negotiating team made the same mistake as Nixon 52 years ago. The final debate of 2012 with Governor Mitt Romney was set for foreign policy, something that as an incumbent president running against a former governor... President Obama would seem to have the advantage on. Yet that third debate, which most media outlets and polls say President Obama won, got 59 million viewers. Whereas the second debate, town hall style, earned 65.6. And the first Denver debate, one of the clearer debate wins in debating history, I would say, where Romney and Reagan-like fashion just had a crisper message and presence, got the highest ratings, 67.2 million of all the three debates in 2012. Just like Nixon, the president allowed a sharper and faster opponent to seize the initiative in a campaign and focus on the incumbent party's shortcomings. While the president seemed to talk about his wife and grandmother and attempt a few too well-rehearsed comebacks, there was a 13% drop-off in the ratings between the first debate and the last, where President Obama recovered and most polls show a win. Unfortunately for his supporters, the last debate on foreign policy went up against a double whammy of a Monday night pro football game and a deciding National League championship game. The president wasn't just up against Mitt Romney. He was up against football and baseball at the same time. Now, likely, the TV schedule is known by debate negotiation teams, and this was known that going into this last debate, there would be some competition, and probably it was a negotiating point. It's common to trash these debates now, right? Martin Kaplan, director of the Norman Lear Center at USC, called them nothing more than joint cameo appearances. It is extremely common to hear that criticism. Others assault the negotiation. They assault the deals made between the two parties. The Commission on Presidential Debates, which establishes the rules under which the two candidates appear. These debates could certainly be improved, and the substance level could be raised. Yet I sometimes think critics are being too tough on them. They should be more specific about what they would like to see and what the audience would be for that. As there was discussion of issues, points, and counterpoints in these debates of 2012. And I think there's one thing that this 2012 election will establish. In terms of the electioneering, debates do matter. The warm camera and hot mic is on with two people who are available for voters to select as their leader. Candidates need to perform, and you can't accidentally or intentionally, because you have the flu, because you didn't memorize, because you didn't prepare, because you don't care, whatever it is, you can't perform badly and expect voters to write it off and just dream about your good qualities. There are a lot of trends that will drive 2012. I talk about the incumbency being a larger factor, maybe the most realized. But you know, any look at trends or what might happen in an election assumes a vigorous campaign from incumbent running. 2012, if nothing else, will show that a challenger kept it a close race largely as a result of the debate. Prior to 2012, a lot of the political science was going in the opposite direction. In fact, Tom Holbrook, U.S. Milwaukee, had studied poll results of debates from 1988 to 2008, from six days before the debate to six days after, and found a 1% difference average in poll support, average over those debates. But you know, Bill Gates walked into a bar and everybody's a millionaire on average, even within that statistic that would seem to downplay debates. There were some big changes in some years. 
In their second debate in 1988, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, a perceived competent governor, had a problem conveying warmth, and he was asked by CNN anchor Bernard Shaw, would he, Dukakis, change his mind? If it were his own wife, Kitty Dukakis, who was raped and murdered, would he be for the death penalty? Dukakis groaned on for minutes about the death penalty in general. It's your wife he's talking about, so many a viewer and voter felt. It was a tough question, but for Shaw, he didn't regret asking it. He said, many voters perceive seeing and hearing Dukakis, but not feeling him. I asked that question to see if there was feeling there. Shaw, to be fair, also asked Bush a tough question if Dan Quayle was really someone he had confidence in if he, Bush, died. Tough questions on both sides, but the Dukakis one was remembered. Dukakis lost 2.42 percentage points in the polls from that miserable debate performance. Well, at this point in 1988 campaign, Dukakis was already down. In 2000, Al Gore's miserable debate performance, the pale looks, the size, the over-gesticulation, according to Holbrook, cost him three points, which in that close election actually caused leadership in the polls to swap and may have set the path for popular vote win, but a Florida recount. John Kerry's debate performance against President George W. Bush gained him two points in the average of polls and leadership of the election for a time, which kept that election razor close right to the finish. And now Romney, quintupling the average gain predicted by the academics. So we've learned something from 2012. Yes, debates do matter. But it was something that was available all along. You can't put two candidates on TV. And no matter how much the questions are scripted, the subjects are scripted, maybe they get to approve who the moderators are, the rules are prearranged, there will be surprising moments. In fact, I think the more you make the rules tighter to try to constrain what moments will happen, the tiny differences will be noticed all the more. 2012 has taken debates to a new level. In a sense, it became a candidate equalizer. Romney had little public perception. Yes, he had run in the primaries before. But he's not well known. Governor of Massachusetts, not a swing state in this election. The debates offered him a platform to provide voters a sense of his own campaign. After all, he had struggled in the primaries. He wasn't the front runner for a long time. And some of the candidates he was facing in those primaries weren't very strong. Not everyone in the party supported Romney I mean, up until the time of the convention and his selection of Paul Ryan, who was a unifying figure in the campaign. So the debates offered him a platform to give people a sense of what Romney was. He took a few moderate positions, too. He used it as the platform to move a bit to the center. After the debate, he went a long way to earn the support of his party and has attempted to, you know, in that Nixonian way, wiggle a little bit. You know, at one point saying, hey, listen, you know, abortion's not going to be a big issue in my campaign. Can't do that without being anointed the champion of all Republicans because of his debate performance. So he did a lot of good. You can't argue with the numbers. Five-point gain in national polls experienced by Romney has not been duplicated by any candidate in Holbrook's study. Gallup's October 4th poll registered voters was 45% and later in October, 50%. Other polls duplicated. So we know they're meaningful to how the election's going to go and must be watched. Debates might be low on substance and high on rhetoric, but this is true of so much political speech. It's not the right question to ask if they're great academic moments. The real question is, are they better than TV ads and speeches? 
as voter information on the campaign trail. On that note, the much maligned debates, I think, do better. Just a sampling of the detailed policy discussion in one debate, the first debate in Denver. A discussion about qualified mortgages in the Dodd-Frank bill, cutting a trillion dollars out of the discretionary domestic budget, oil subsidies to drilling operators, Medicare functioning with or without a voucher opt-out program, corporate tax rates on manufacturing, land permits for oil operators, coal production. I mean, there is a limit to how much detail any TV debate can go into. They're not essays by any means. We could certainly have the candidates write competing essays or blog posts or something. The dynamic that makes debates better than, say, ads or speeches that might be covered on the news is that they are live and that two viewpoints are present to limit the amount of rhetoric one side can get away with. And yes, the TV medium does tend to favor those who's the quicker comeback agent, faster on the rhetorical feet, but it would be hard under any debate format not to give a benefit to the charismatic, visually appealing, and fast. Candidates are able to counterpunch, which helps. I mean, when Obama asks, you don't come close to paying for $5 trillion in tax cuts and $2 trillion in additional military spending. Romney answers, I don't have a plan for a $5 trillion tax cut. If you ask me to support that, I would say absolutely not. You know, they're able to answer. Now, I'll get into the fact-checking and things like that. The number comes from a study by nonpartisan Tax Policy Center, examined Romney's proposals, and said that they would total $480 billion by 2015. Obama campaign takes that number, projects the cost over a decade, and comes up with the $5 trillion. Now, some of the fact-checkers dinged Obama for not including some of the revenue deductions that Romney would eliminate that would bring that down. But Obama wouldn't do that because Romney's campaign didn't specify what those deductions were. It's complex, of course, but citing the $5 trillion, which his campaign had projected was a difficult one to stand at, I think. Um... Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, I think that was much of the reason for the performance in the debate, because once he lost the talking point on the $5 trillion, wasn't something he had Romney saying directly in video or even citing the, that number. It's a projection over 10 years. You know, it was easy for Romney just to deny. And in that TV program, I don't think the president had much of a backup plan in that first debate. Yeah, maybe it was the altitude. Maybe he just had a little bit of the flu or something. But I think what it really is is probably the loss of that $5 trillion argument took away from what his debate prep had been about. Probably had a couple of zingers planned, you know. When Romney later, though, said about Obamacare in Massachusetts, we didn't put in place a board that can tell people ultimately what, ultimately what treatments they're going to receive. 
Obama got to defend and say, no, that's important to figure out how do we make cost care more effective. And there are ways of doing it, cited the Cleveland Clinic. So debates allow candidates to do a lot better with providing alternate information to voters than some of the other forms of political discussion out there. One of the problems with speeches is, is that candidates are able to kind of constrain all the proportions. And in a debate, candidates are able to introduce new dimensions to the debate. So look at this uh, interchange, for example. Again, I'm citing the Denver debate. So Romney says, Simpson Bowles, the uh, deficit-cutting plan. You know, the president should have grabbed that. Jim Lehrer redirects it to Romney. I asked, do you, Governor, support Simpson Bowles? Romney says, I have my own plan. It's not the same as Simpson Bowles, but in my view, the president should have grabbed it. If you wanted to make some adjustments to it, take it, go to Congress, and fight for it. Then Obama responds, that's what we've done. We've made some adjustments to it, and we're putting it forward before Congress right now, a $4 trillion plan. Romney then says, but you've been president for four years. So if this is just a Romney speech, he gets to talk about his deficit-cutting plan without mentioning that he doesn't support Simpson-Bowles. He had, at least from the moderator, that being forced back at him. And if it's an Obama speech, he gets to talk about a deficit reduction plan without mentioning that he's been president for four years. So candidates at least get to introduce dimensions that are never going to show up in one-party rhetoric. Call it what you will, but here's the point. It's not a joint cameo. You can say that that exchange is irrelevant if you wish. It's a deficit plan both parties will probably never take on. But you've got a limiting of the rhetoric by the challenge of the moderator and the other candidate. Now, the problem, and this is definitely something you heard from Obama supporters after the first debate, what if you get a really rehearsed, really good guy who just denies stuff and then walks off the stage running out the clock with no one to correct the facts, right? I'm not saying I agree with the characterization uh, that that's what happened in Denver, but to take the hypothetical. I would just simply say this is why the presidential debates have evolved over the years. And generally, you have three debates now. No candidate has yet proposed one debate as we had in 1980. They all saw that as damaging to Carter. And what you saw in this 2012 election is if you felt that Obama didn't do well in the first debate, you're an Obama supporter, you got two opportunities to see your guy perform a little bit better in the other debates. We shouldn't just rely on the quantity. These debates could certainly be improved from the CPD model. Uh, The folks at Nielsen tell us that no debate has ever beat the Kennedy-Nixon first debate by number of households. So something is happening. The viewership's going down slightly. About 69 million watched the debate we discussed between Carter and Ford. Slightly more when the population is adjusted to the audience than for the Romney-Obama debate. Now, How do we get more people interested in these debates since we can't go back to the first one? Oh, it might be cool, a little retro thing. There are possible clues in the two top debates by pure number of viewers. The top debate by pure number of viewers, 1980. Single debate held between President Carter and Ronald Reagan. 80 million watched that debate. Most people ever to watch a debate. The second most watched debate is 1992, according to Nielsen. The first debate with Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Ross Perot, 70 million viewers. The trio's second debate is not too shabby either, with 66 million, making it the most-watched second debate in any one election. So now, from that, I'm thinking there's maybe two things that you could do. One is to go with that one single debate and put it 
right before the election, you know, one week before the election, as it was in 1980, because that's when people tend to care about it. And if they know there's just one to watch, they're all going to watch that one, just like 1980. Well, that's tough, though, because as I described before, no candidate wants to put their candidate in that. What if they have a bad day? If Obama did that in 2012, I don't think his campaign managers would have been very happy with their negotiation. So that's probably not going to happen. But the other thing you can do then is to introduce a third-party candidate, as in 1992. But it hasn't happened since then. In 1996, the Commission on Presidential Debates denied Ross Perot's entry by deciding yesterday to exclude Ross Perot from this year's debates. The commission proved itself to be the tool of two dominant parties rather than a guardian of the public interest, the New York Times. Ross Perot then went to the FCC and said he was denied fair time. Clinton and Dole were on the ABC program 2020. The commission said no. Section 315, the rule allowing for fair use, exempts several types of bona fide news programming from the equal opportunities requirement in that section. The programs complained of were news events, bona fide news events. Equal opportunities were not required. Supporters of third parties obviously not happy with the decisions of 1996. The issue was raised in 1980 when John Anderson was a third party candidate. He tried to get into the debates. The main obstacle there was President Jimmy Carter. Carter said in an interview that he believed John Anderson, as far as he knew, was primarily a creation of the press. He didn't have a mandate from the American people, didn't get a nomination of a party like Carter had to do. He didn't think anything was served by having a public forum with three candidates are on stage answering questions for an hour and a half. It would confuse the issue and unnecessarily boost John Anderson. Though he respected him, should not be boosted to the same status as two men who have fought a rough campaign through all the primaries and come out with nominations of a major party. Mike Jackson writes on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site, The issue of third-party candidates and debates in government is something that I chew on and not really sure why I stand. On the one hand, I can see how exclusion from the debates and lack of access to campaign funding drastically hurts third parties' chances. On the other hand, do we really think the popularity of libertarians, greens, and others would increase that much if they were included more? I'm also a bit leery of third parties in general because in many European systems, they have power beyond their representation. Thanks, Mike. Good question and good statement. I've thought about it too. I think it's obvious that any participation in a debate would boost those third-party candidates, Green, Libertarian, Blue Party, whatever they are. When Anderson was running and dipping in the polls, pollsters then asked American voters, would you vote for Anderson if he was viable? And Anderson was getting like 12 to 15% in like September, early October 1980, and that would boost up to 25% when they asked that question. Would you vote for him if he was viable? Still wasn't enough to win, but it was putting him more in the range. So American voters were definitely saying, I don't want to waste my vote. Similar dynamics with Perot. In June 1992, he was even leading the race at that point. But he dropped out and then started to make some statements that just didn't sound right about Bush and the dirty tricks with his daughter wedding and things like that. He became less viable. Then when he re-entered the race, he was still a protest vote for people who didn't want the candidates, but he was less of a serious vote. He got the 19%. So... I'm agreed that despite all the talk, most Americans want their vote to go to a candidate who can win, and the two parties are smart enough to accommodate any large opinion group. That being said, I believe that the third parties might provide a function that really has nothing to do with them. They could enlighten the debate. They could increase the ratings. 
and they could help with the information provided to voters by also adding additional information and countering what some of the candidates are saying, so getting away from that rhetoric. On the other hand, there's a balance that needs to be struck. You can't have 20 people on a podium benefiting from the effect of being seen on it. So there's got to be some rules here. I don't think you can just cast aside Carter's argument as snobbish as it sounds, you know, as uh, and in, in these times when uh, we don't take as much stock as even they did in 1980 of the two parties of being Democrats and Republicans, you know, we kind of like our independence. I don't think you'd still just cast aside that argument. The people have the right to see the viables, don't they? So, I mean, I think there's two things you could do. One is keep the commission on presidential debates and let the candidates have two or three debates, but encourage a fourth public debate, one that might be conducted by public donations even, that you would include every presidential candidate, let's say, that's on all 50 states in the election. Yep, Socialist Labor, yep, Constitution Party, Libertarian, etc. It would be a large podium and a wide-angle camera shot. And I also think you'd need a large time period, perhaps three hours with a break, perhaps. But I think you'd get the ratings, especially for the first one. And I think, though, with the negotiations between the two parties, it only happens with a big public outcry that gives them both an excuse doing it. See, I don't see the CPD as this big monster. What I see is two candidates looking for any advantage in an election, and that makes it very difficult to settle down and agree on rules for a forum. And 1980 was seen as a great failure. I think you saw the evolution of the commission. It's conflict resolution, and there's no simple fix for it. So I think you only get participation in this fourth public debate if there's a big public outcry. The other way would be to tweak the standard. Right now, the standard is 15%. That comes from the Commission on Presidential Debates. It's a negotiated arrangement of the two candidates. In most cases, neither one is going to want a third party. There might be an election here or there where it's advantageous for one, but in this commission-type system, it is true that they generally don't want a third party. It just plays too much with the strategy. You can go back to 92 and talk to Carville and talk to Mary Madeline, talk to Bob Teeter, talk to George Stephanopoulos, The three-way dynamics of a debate are just hard to plan for. The commission is much blind. But I wonder if a simple fix would do, reduce this standard of 15% in an average of major respected polls to, say, 6 or 7. So a third party would eat 6 or 7% in the polls at the time the debates are set in order to get into the debate. That's still a very hard standard. Millions of supporters, most third parties don't have it. If a reasonably strong third party or independent candidate, here's a way of looking at it. If you worked in an office of 25, 30 people, assuming there are some misanthropes who just glare at you when they're getting their coffee and don't support anything, on average, at least one or two of the people in your office are going to be a supporter of this party, right? If we averaged it out. And that's six or 7%. That's the real standard that you need to get into a debate. And it seems fair to me. I think it is a realistic goal, even with the current commission structure, because the commission does face some criticism. And if there was more of a public interest in this particular issue and more of an outcry, maybe through social media or other venues. Well, we've learned in 2012 now, if nothing else, debates matter in some elections. And they might matter more with some of the tweaks we talked about. But one thing we should always keep in mind, 
when sometime there's a discussion of how much campaign substance we've lost over time since the time of the founders, right? The Constitution never called for a great debate of the issues before the country when selecting the president. Especially we can't fault them asking for a debate of the men who would be president because transportation and communication would have made this impossible. But not even so much as a printed sheet of issues in the 13 states was prescribed. And not so much as a debate in the electoral college of some defined type was called for. I don't think it's the direction they were going. The reason, I think, is that they would have probably looked to Congress with the pulse of the people elected every two years to pick the issues. What was the government to do? Washington said so much in his first address as president. He basically said to Congress, you're all good people, so I won't bother you with naming issues. I'll leave it up to you. The Constitutional Convention, though, did want the president to be more than just a simple manager of Congress's will. He has a role he vetoes, and he suggests bills to Congress in a desperate situation and call that lazy body into session. Eh, But I think they look to Congress as the spark. But the selection of president prescribed in the Constitution seems to be aimed at selecting the best or ablest man by social judgment. Who will lead well? Who won't be a tyrant? Hence the Electoral College. We're supposed to be respected people as a filter of the popular vote. In the convention, delegates called for a vigorous executive and a man of energy and dispatch. Examples were given of someone who could face a hostile Spanish fleet attacking the nation. What you don't see much evidence of is kind of how we look at the presidency today. Elect the man who will agree with you on most issues. Know what issues they stand for, be informed of it, and thus elect them. This is kind of what it's evolved to, and there may be no going back. Thus, in an odd way, today's debate, though they might be lacking by some criticism and issues, I don't completely agree with that, as I said, may be a little bit closer to what they were looking for. TV debates give you clues on how someone thinks on their feet, verbal acuity, the commands of the facts, especially over three very long debates, four and a half hours of debating time in most elections. We could do better with them, but it might be a little closer to the Constitutional Conventioner's vision than you might think. Yet to balance a person who might be a great debater and not a great president, they certainly shouldn't be the only way voters make decisions. Combined with many other forms of information voters get, though, they have their place. And, as Kathleen Hall Jamison so wisely puts it, former professor of rhetoric at University of Pennsylvania, they are what we have. Until we develop other forms of exchange of information, perhaps a more rigorous editorial board type review of the candidates on live television. Oh, a quiz that the candidates could take. A competing blog post just like you would see on Facebook between the two candidates point and counterpoint till we come up with something like that Jameson's right they are what we have I want to thank you for listening the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com I want to tell you about the best of myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com it is on iTunes search for it and it's nine ninety nine to get the 21 best podcasts from the past If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.